Hello and welcome. I'm Naledi Makene and I'm the events coordinator at Zocalo Public Square. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at zocalopublicsquare.org in all the main podcast platforms. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like it, follow us, or subscribe. We're about to hear from journalist and author Elizabeth Mitchell, who joins us today to discuss her new book, Lincoln's Lie, which chronicles an episode in Abraham Lincoln's life that may prompt us to reconsider how we understand him. And I'm thrilled to introduce Richard Kreitner, who will interview Elizabeth today. Richard is the author of Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. He is a frequent contributor to The Nation, and his writing has been published in The New York Times, The Washington Post, and many other outlets. Over to you, Richard. The country has been made the victim of false news, manufactured reports, exaggerated statements, fictitious accounts. This quote comes from a remarkable new book about conspiracy and sedition, market manipulation and free speech, political crisis and division. It's about the president of the United States declaring war on the press, accusing critical journalists of nothing less than treason, full of shocking revelations that somehow finds a fresh story to tell about a four year long national catastrophe about which I had foolishly presumed I had little left to learn. The book is not about Donald Trump, however, it's about Abraham Lincoln. It's called Lincoln's Lie a true Civil War caper through fake news, Wall Street, and the White House. And of course, it is by Elizabeth Mitchell, with whom I have the high honor of speaking today. In the book, Elizabeth explores Lincoln's authoritarian side and his often manipulative relationship with the press. The book is a remarkable feat of historical research and even more so of storytelling. And more than that, it makes us look at Lincoln anew, quite astonishingly, given that it joins some 16,000 other books on the Lincoln bookshelf. Somehow it finds not only new things to say, but insanely relevant ways to say and to frame them. In addition to Lincoln's Lie, Elizabeth is the author of three other nonfiction books, exploring the Statue of Liberty, horse racing, and the Bush family dynasty. Her writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Time, the Wall Street Journal, New York Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, and many other outlets. She was previously the executive editor of George and the features editor at Spin. Elizabeth, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's lovely to be with you, Richard. I want to jump right into things with a big question, not a soft one. <laughs> um, <laughs> then we'll come back and ask you know, about, about other things. Um, so most critiques of Lincoln these days take aim at his less than fully woke attitudes on race and his foot dragging on the path to emancipation. Mm -hmm. The argument that he used authoritarian, unconstitutional means to stifle dissent during the war strikes me at least as a somewhat older, more neglected recently strand of Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln, of course, addressed this issue in his lifetime. Um, defending his initial suspension of habeas corpus in 1861, he famously asked, are all the laws but one to go unexecuted and the government itself go to pieces, lest that one be violated? Lincoln's defenders usually agree with him. By the end of the war, however, that but one law that has to be violated become, became but this one and that one and that other one and what the hell this one too. Some of Lincoln's occasional excesses or extra constitutional interventions seem at least arguably necessary for the war effort. But this one that you write about, the arrest of editors, the suppression of newspapers, the seizure of telegraph offices, well, it feels different. It feels gratuitous, vengeful, or worse, self-exculpatory, um, that's to say, cover-up. 
I found myself resisting this all along as I read, straining with increasing discomfort to keep granting Lincoln the benefit of the doubt. But here's my question. Why do you think we have this indulgent, somewhat permissive attitude toward Lincoln, excusing things he did that we would be or have been critical of other presidents for doing? And what does that cost us both in terms of historical understanding and present day politics? Well, I think there's uh, at least two reasons why we have this feeling about Lincoln. And uh, one is, I think that, uh, thank goodness, over time, it has uh, dawned on us that slavery was the biggest abomination possible. And that, so therefore the idea that he somehow helped us clear that um, uh, to a degree from the you know, national uh, story, I think uh, we get, grant him all sorts of leeway. And, and he, you know, he deserves a great deal of credit for that because he basically did put his life on the line to rise to public office to, to see that through. Um, but I think uh, the other thing is we don't uh, we don't encourage people to dive too deeply into history. I mean, it's it's taught at a somewhat surface level up through, you know, most middle schools. Uh, then you get into high school and you get a little bit more. And then, you know, by the time you're in college, you're almost at the degree of you know specialty on some small part of it. And I think the thing is, it's really helpful for us to take a look at his, uh, his idea of when to honor the Constitution and when not, because we can learn a lot about what we're facing in the future. I mean, even what we just faced for four years. Uh, you know, on a certain level, he had an interpretive um, uh, approach to the executive branch. And I think that uh, the way it's structured at this point, the executive branch gets that advantage maybe to a dangerous degree. Hmm. Do you, um, I mean, kind of a related question. Do you, do you think that this is kind of an offense against um, the constitution or against norms of, of the rule of law or something that is much worse than, than something that other presidents have done? You know, how, how much of an outlier is Lincoln in that regard? Uh, well, if we go, if we start with habeas corpus, <laughs> that was a pretty big one. And I think that, uh, you know, he he justified it because of the war. And I think a lot of people went along with it because of that. Um, but even in the crisis that erupts in my book, it goes to, there's a court case where they actually argue out some of those issues. And the thing is habeas corpus hadn't been used before in a situation where you were putting sort of this blanket um, you know, uh, you know, stopped to court trials, uh, just in, in case anyone's, you know, just to, to, to clarify that what it was, the suspension of habeas corpus was saying that you don't have to have a fair trial, you don't have to go to trial to, um, to have your case, you could just sort of be put in jail. Uh, and uh, there was no guarantee of that trial. And so, um, you know, along the way, people were trying to work in different parts to say, well, it's only in this territory, um, or it's, uh, you know, it, it, you can get a, um, a military trial, but you can't have a civil trial. Um, but I think that, you know, he extended that well beyond the, the idea of it's just where bullets are flying and you can't get to a courthouse to have a, a trial. And that was that was quite dangerous. Also, it wasn't great for, uh, you know, even for a sort of PR of, of the war. It made a lot of people who would have fully, full-throatedly supported him uh, worry about him because they thought that he had this sort of totalitarian, you know, tyrannical streak. Um, so, at the very least, it was not well explained by him um, why he felt that was necessary. 
just to summarize very quickly for readers who have not read the book yet, which which everybody should, you know, the story is about this this proclamation that is released in May of 1864, which is calling up, you know, it's, it's calling for a day of, of fasting and prayer because the Union losses have supposedly been so terrible in the field of late, and, and for a new draft of 400,000 men to take their place. And Lincoln says that this is a fraud, it's forged, worse than forged, it's made up, it's fake news, and, and orders the suppression of the newspapers and the arrest of the editors, shutting down telegraph offices in Washington and New York and, and elsewhere around the country. So that's the story. And, and I, I just, I, again, you know, I, I um, was reading the book kind of trying to defend Lincoln at every page until my case just totally collapsed, you know, towards the end of the book. You make a very convincing argument for for total overreach on his part, but you know, devil's advocate or something. You know, do you think there's anything to the case that the federal lawyers in the New York courtroom were making, which is that you know the the, the New York state officials considered what Lincoln had ordered done in New York, the suppression of the newspapers, the arrest of the editors, to be a, a, a unconstitutional violation of their state's rights, of New York state's rights. And had the general, I was shocked by this. I mean, this is one of the places where I wrote, wow, in the margins. They actually ordered the general arrested. Mm-hmm. And he was in jail, I mean, briefly. Yeah. Um, a shocking. Um, it, but they, they argued, these federal lawyers, that if New York state was allowed to do this, it would be you know, it would, be, it would hamper the war effort. It would it would injure the federal government's ability to defend its authority at a time of, um, of an insurrection against it. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any case to be made about that? Do you think that, um, you know, yes, Lincoln's um, prosecution of these journalists was an overreaction, but was the was the uh, reaction to his overreaction also perhaps a little hysterical and, and not necessarily taking into account the fact that there was a civil war going on and the federal government really needed all the strength um, and ability to act that it, that it could have. Well, first you have to keep in mind that these are the two. These are very, two very important newspapers. These aren't sort of fly-by-night publications. There, you know, one was almost the equivalent of the Wall Street Journal, and then the other one uh, was, you know, probably in popularity. We probably don't even have one that's exactly equivalent. Maybe it would have been like. USA Today when it's doing its most, um, you know, hard hitting uh, reporting. And so um, he he not he shuts down he shuts down the telegraph, which at that point in time was like our Internet. I mean, I hadn't understood this before doing the reporting on the book, but um, it had gone from being something where when Lincoln took office, he would send out, you know, he'd send a messenger to the telegraph office once a month to send out a message. By the time of the book, um, which is 1864, he's basically living in the telegraph office. He's, he's um, you know, sending out many proclamations and other sorts of announcements, but he's also, you know, sort of in a surveillance mode of reading everything that's coming across the wires because the wires are going through the War Department just a few um, Um, you know, just feet from the White House. So, and then meanwhile, every citizen is using the, um, the telegraph to do everything from, you know, sending a message to their friend who they're going to meet for dinner and saying, we're going to the opera. Um, You know, there's all kinds of dialogues going on there. When people were in the field fighting, they could have a dialogue on the telegraph. So when he shuts it down up the whole East Coast, that's basically if they if our internet was taken away for, from us, um, and not just for, you know, a few hours to see what's happening. This was multiple days. This was when um, it's it's in the order of six days, where, as one person said, it, w- it was as if it vanished into the, you know, center of the world, it was gone. So that seems to be an extreme 
you know, action. He also seized all the telegrams in all of the telegraph offices all up and down the East Coast. And then the newspaper editors, yes, arrested. These are the famous ones. And he puts the military into the offices, not just for an hour or two, but for days. So all of those actions are, it's the, it's the duration of it that moves you past the point of just a president in a state of rage to something that's, that's more um, threatening to free speech, you know, private property, you know, rule of law in terms of, you know, having charges, investigation, evidence before you make arrests. And, um, you know, as you, as we learn in the course of the book, it's actually, you know, he had some information (laughs) that was, you know, significant to understanding why this thing had happened. And um, in as much as he had drafted, uh, you know, an order uh, for soldiers that mirrored the one that was in the papers and had signed it, but didn't send it out. So he knew essentially it was a leak. So if he, if he, you thought, if he thought it was a leak, then you would think that all the wrath would happen just within the White House confines or the War Department and wouldn't just be unleashed on the press. Right. And then, um, and the, the newspapers that you mentioned there, they were also Democratic newspapers, critical yeah. of the yeah. Lincoln administration. So do you think that he's using this as an excuse to do something that he had otherwise wanted to do? Is that the suggestion? Well, there's one of the interesting things is in the research, I had the lucky, you know, happenstance that um, the one of the key editors who's arrested um, is uh, separated from his wife. She's up in Hartford. So I get the the great windfall of the fact that they have messages going back and forth between them through the whole thing. So you get a TikTok of how they're thinking. Um, And this is multiple messages a day. Uh, But she has lots of conspiracy theories that she thinks that they're being shut down because the Republican convention is, you know, coming up very soon and he just wants to shut their voices down. Now, you would almost, you know, you could go with his, you know, some, not his necessarily, but other people in government's theory that the Democrats were acting up and this is why they ran it. But when you look at all of the, you know, internal documents and the, you know, the letters between the editors and all the rest, it's clear that they thought when they got this proclamation that was on the same paper as the Associated Press, delivered by, you know, a boy as the Associated Press messages were sent. Um, And, uh, you know, in the handwriting, even that they thought was the Associated Press person, that they had to run it because because they were Democratic papers. And that if they decided not to run it, they would have gotten in trouble for not having run, uh, you know, the proclamation Mm -hmm. that Abraham Lincoln sent out. So I think the, uh, you know, clearly they acted because of the fear of suspicion. Um, Now, did he act to shut them down because of uh, wanting them silenced at that moment? Hard to say. I mean, I don't have evidence that that's what his motivation was, Um, but it certainly helped, I would say. You know, it helped helped make them look um, less reliable right at the time that they were going into the Republican convention. Right. The, the one thing that I kept thinking about um, just in, in the argument against that, and one of the amazing things about the book is, is how you, um, you give the reader enough to work with to, to, to tease out the possible answers to these mysteries in, in our minds while not, you know, um, coming down too heavily um, one way or the other through the entire book, even right up to the end, but what, what your actual theory is or what the right theory of it actually is. 
one little piece of evidence against their claims the, the, the newspapers that they innocently published it was you quote the New York Times saying you know well that's their fault that's you know it's either um, it's either something you know evil or, or really underhanded or it's just editorial incompetence mm -hmm. because we saw this and we immediately knew it was a forgery it's not Lincoln style which was actually you know I mean I've, I've read an un ungodly number of books about Lincoln I also thought like page one that's not Lincoln you know yeah but here's the only thing there's well there's two things there which is that one Abraham Lincoln's proclamations tended to have that voice so it's mm -hmm. um it's the, I mean I read because at one point um I thought I went with that theory that this didn't sound like Abraham Lincoln at all. But then I went back and looked at the one that he sent from the previous year that was about asking everyone to atone for their sins and, you know, all Americans and pray to God for all. And it had the exact same sort of spirit to it. And in fact, in, you know, later on, once, you know, all this mayhem is unleashed, he releases a proclamation in July that's asking for um, fasting and prayer, the same thing that's asked for in this particular proclamation. And it has the same sort of tone so so i actually think that you know i i ultimately i couldn't go with that one and the other thing is that the new york times um happened to be um run by henry raymond who who was about to publish this massive uh you know book on abraham lincoln with all his letters and speeches and it's the it's it's kind of a to track that is interesting too because he was so um you know, also he was a major figure in the Republican Party. So he's so his desire is certainly to to bash the Democratic papers and to right. make sure Lincoln looks good. So actually, over time, I find the New York Times's um, interactions on all of these things almost funny because they they are so eager to go after their rivals uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the in in their columns. I mean, that's what, just one of the many joys of, of the book is these warring editors and newspapers. Um, I, I always like sitting in Herald Square beneath the, the monument to James Gordon Bennett yeah. um, and, and the Herald. And it's got this incredible inscription um, about the bell that is there, you know, the workmen who told the bell every hour. Um, and says so something about the that the bells told the active hours. And I've always just played with that phrase in my mind about, you know, 19th century New York journalism. It just sounds, and the way you, the way I'm, I'm just, I'm just uh, singing the praises of the book, but the way that you, you paint the way the actual newspaper, you know, the newsrooms felt and the buildings and who was next door to who is just absolutely incredible. So um, how did you land on this story? And what, what did you do when you first started digging? What were your first steps? Well, the, um, I had been working on the, this, my previous book, which was Liberty's Torch, the Great Adventure to Build the Statue of Liberty, which had, you know, it was, it, that had its own thing where I had, you know, always gone along with the uh, idea that it was this gift from the French government to the American government. And then when I was digging through um, archival material in the New York Public Library, I found the diary of Bartholdi who made the statue. And it was clear it was this diary from when he first came to New York and he knew no one. And he was pitching this statue that no one wanted. And they all thought he was insane for trying to build a Colossus. So I found that so interesting. I was, you know, went deep on that. But the, on this one, I, there was uh, when Pulitzer bought the world, the newspaper, um, and was using this as a fundraising vehicle for the um, Statue of Liberty. Uh, he had apparently gotten the paper at a cut rate price. And it was because of the fact that um, 
you know, 20 years earlier, uh, it had been so shamed by running this pro false proclamation. And so there it said that Lincoln had arrested, you know, as a little mention, he'd arrested the editors and, you know, and, and uh, put military in the newspaper offices. And that was so different from anything I knew of Lincoln, aside from, you know, it, it, it seemed more severe than even the habeas corpus, you know, debates. And so, uh, I started looking into it. And then as I started <laughs> examining it, it just kept getting more and more intriguing because the investigative path takes you not only through the media world at that time, but into Wall Street and all the stock mani manipulation that was going on, gold manipulation in particular, and then all the way down to DC. And it was a vision of the time in the Civil War I had never read. I mean, in terms of we are so, the severity of the, carnage uh, almost numbs us to any other part of that history because it's just so much. And then, um, and then of course, um, you know, and then we put Lincoln into the, Lincoln is always through his speeches and things like that, you know, more than we see him less in action than we see him mm -hmm. as someone who's thinking and, you know, emoting and all the rest. And so uh, this was an opportunity to see him in action and also to understand that in the Civil War, it wasn't as if everyone was walking around with great sobriety. It's like, you know, we get this impression that that time, at that time, all of the country, you know, understood the great things were at stake and they were consumed by it. But instead, you know, I'm finding all of these people who are living the high life, you know, and they were, they were completely occupied with, you know, how much money they were making on the war and everything else. And so that appealed to me. And were you surprised? I mean, I was very surprised in reading it that no historians seem to have landed on this story before. I think what it is, is, you know, you'll have little mentions of it in different places, but I think that it's, um, I just think that there's something about the idea that Abraham Lincoln is an epic figure, so he has to be handled in an epic way, right? So, mm -hmm. so the idea of taking, you know, taking this one incident and then putting everybody in motion in the story and sort of understanding how that thing played out, I think is, is not very common in Lincoln's scholarship. So, I mean, there's amazing Lincoln scholarship. And I mean, I used, you know, relied on much of it in the, in my book. And, uh, you know, Michael Burlingame has done incredible, uh, you know, scholarly work digging up, especially the, the papers. I mean, his Lincoln book is amazing, but then also his work digging up the writings of his aides and, uh, you know, understanding who all those people were. And then, you know, people have compiled the Mary Todd Lincoln files uh, to a great degree. Although there are some things that are still out there supposedly that will be great to one day find to understand her better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's one of the most incredible kind of characters or elements of the story without giving anything away. Um, just very interesting. I, I didn't know anything about that. Um, so you know, you mentioned the, the letters from um, one of the imprisoned um, editors or suppressed newspaper editors. Um, to his wife in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And what's one of the things that's so rich about the story is the sources that you draw on. Every, you know, every little person's reaction to something, you actually somehow track down and are able to provide us. You know, I kept asking myself, well, what did this person do when they got that letter? And you immediately tell us, you know, what they thought and then like what they had for breakfast. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, there would be, uh, you know, what I liked about doing the research too was the fact that you were looking at not just the sort of the famous figures, but the ones, but people who were just doing any job. And the one that I really was, the most happy to find was when the 
telegraph operators get arrested. I thought if only I could have some view of what that, you know, was like. So I was looking in military files and seeing if I could find logs from prisons and all these things. And even that I knew was not going to be uh, deep enough. And then I came across one little mention that talked about a telegraph operator who had died and it said, but you know, his, his reminiscence about the arrests in 1864 are well worth reading in the telegraph age. So luckily the New York public library has the whole telegraph age, you know, the, the actual Mm -hmm. papers. And so um, I could go through that and find these vivid descriptions of what was going on when they got arrested, including like the thunderbolt of lightning and the, you know, the, that one of them's working on his um, machine when a, sword slides under his hands and lifts his hands off the keys you know so it's like and that's I think that's very helpful too because if you don't understand the levels of you know the fear and anxiety and not knowing how the thing's going to play out I don't think you can understand history like I think history we have to put ourselves back there when we didn't know what the resolution was and understand how people are responding in the you know in the moment it's my, my first through 10th commandment. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, as a nonfiction writer, I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing about your process of compiling this book. I hope, uh, you know, our listeners or viewers are as interested, but, you know, it's so impeccably written, fast paced, detailed. How do you take this mass of research material and, and shape it into a narrative? How do you even begin to do that? Um, well, basically, I do a, a tremendous amount of research, and then at some point, I just lie on my bed looking at the ceiling and try and imagine what it looks like. It's one of those things where you have to sort of, I have, I have come to understand over time that the, you know, story arc really matters. You have to figure out what your material is and how it fits into this kind of over, um, overarching uh, tale. And so, uh, I I did I just was constantly making you know on note cards and things structures and shifting them around to see where it would all line up and then you see where gaps are and you keep going back and doing research and you know mm-hmm. and then and then of course the part where it gets really painful is when you're trying to figure out you know like oh timelines are very important too you have I think all every book I've worked on I have a very detailed timeline because I think you can get into writing and if you don't understand how something matched up to some of uh, the, you know, what they were reacting to, then you'll never understand the full uh, motivations. But in any case, it's, it's, uh, y- you know, you, you, you keep, it's just this constant back and forth of structuring and digging. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. So, <laughs> and hoping to get lucky and find the things that you, you know, some something that you would really need in terms of a cache of letters or what have you. Right. But I mean, you just, you just always seem to have found that with this book. It's this, this <laughs> incredible story that's not been told and yet all the materials are there to, to tell it. Well, there, the, when we, the, the real key twist to the book, which has to do with Mary Todd Lincoln, that was one that came actually after I'd been researching for quite a while. And then all of a sudden I came across a few documents that, um, that started pointing in the direction of her involvement. And, and then in searching the, the things just kept kind of lining up where, you know, uh, I was, you know, she, she's in great debt. That's what we have to work um, in, in uh, reading the book. But that, uh, and so, and the, the timeline of that was matching up so directly and her relationship to the reporter and all that. And one of the most amazing um, finds for me was that, um, so the, there's a reporter who ends up being 
a focus of the investigation. He was one of the most famous reporters, charismatic, witty, you know, uh, had been covering important people for a long time. Um, and at one point, you know, he actually, they arrest him for this um, crime. Uh, but, you know, even though there's this demand for him to be, have a court trial and all the information to come out through that, it's just shuttled away and, and he's released. And so when I was in his archives, you know, it was like, you know, something like 14 long boxes of, of materials and going through page by page. Um, I knew that a fire had destroyed most of his documents um, before the 1864. So I was saddened by that, that I wasn't going to find anything. And then I found at one point, clipped to another letter, this letter a friend had sent back to him a letter he'd written in 1864, right at the time of my book. And it has this material in it that was just a sort of, you know, incredible confirmation or of, of, you know, the story that I was telling. So that was quite a wild find. Yeah. He's, he's an amazing character, Joseph Howard. Mm -hmm. And you show how he's, you know, he was um, connected to Lincoln or kind of associated with him and supported him going back to before the inauguration in 1861. Yeah. Um, one thing I kept asking myself throughout the book was some form of the usual rejoinder to revisionist accounts of historical figures that accuse them of falling short of, you know, contemporary standards. And that's, of course, wasn't it just a different time? Mm -hmm. I'm less comfortable asking that question about, like, the morality of enslaving other human beings mm -hmm. than I am about the ethical standards of a free and independent press, which have actually, you know, shifted considerably over time. You show Lincoln cannily manipulating the press one way or another throughout his career, and I hope you'll talk about some of those. But, but wasn't that like fairly typical for the time, um, publishing anonymous pieces, subsidizing, you know, semi-official mouthpieces and whatnot? You know, we esteem Lincoln higher than almost every other American ever, so we shouldn't hold him to a higher standard. But by the standards of official practice of his time, does he fall short, would you say? And was he especially manipulative with the press? Well, the anonymous part, uh, most journalists were anonymous at that point in time. Um, that was just the standard was considered an act of ego, you know, ugly ego to put your name on a piece. So very few people had a byline. So anonymity was accepted. Um, the, the idea that those people who, you know, that those articles weren't by actual journalists, I think was not at all accepted. I think people did mm -hmm. assume that if you had got a newspaper, those were really reported stories. So it was a use of the, of the, you know, the, you know, the sort of standards of the time to manipulate information in that way. And I mean, I came across plenty of people objecting to the, you know, they'd say, we suspect that, you know, Lincoln, this is a Lincoln person who's put the story in and they weren't pleased about it. The other thing is if you take the incident, he, um, uh, he bought a newspaper in the center of the country um, right before the, the 1860 election. Um, and it was a German language newspaper and the German American vote was going to be really important in that election. So he, he purchases it. Now you could say, well, that's just partisanship and that's what the way it ran back then. But it's the fact that it's a secret contract <laughs> that makes it um, one suspect that it wasn't the greatest in motives. And the other thing is that he went first to the Republican Party um, and asked for the funds to buy the paper. And they said it would be unseemly to have a candidate, you know, to, to be somehow subsidizing a newspaper at that level. So I think 
there was a standard there that he was violating. Now, did he do evil, evil things with the papers? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the worst you can say is that he, I mean, I don't know that it was a great practice for him to be criticizing his legal opponents in the paper under assumed names. That's, that was (laughs) probably a violation of his oath, but it it wasn't as if he was, um, he wasn't seeding, major, uh, you know, hatred or stirring up things in that way. He was using it more as a way to make his policies better loved, I guess. I mean, but I think it was, I don't even think you could excuse it at the time. I think a lot of things, sometimes we say that, um, you know, we should judge him by the times. Another example is people Okay, I don't, I think Abraham Lincoln himself was probably uh, not, I, 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 I believe that the views that he was, you know, probably very comfortable with black people and he was, you know, was better, you know, and some say better than most may be true. But there were people who were really much more enlightened than, than that at the time. And I think that's what we're ignoring is that we think the times were, univer- you know, sort of in broad sense, so much worse than we are now. But there were plenty of enlightened human beings and plenty of people who are putting their life on the line, um, you know, white people <laughs> to to help support, you know, the, you know, abolitionist movement and, you know, and, you know, taking up other issues that had to do with, uh, you know, supporting people of other races. So I think it's also misleading to say that he would, you know, these people had no exposure to those ideas. Right. I completely agree with you um, on, on the, you know, the race and the slavery question. Um, I'm always, you know, Thaddeus Stevens uh, fan. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't sure about the, the journalistic standards at the time, but I think you make a very convincing case that, that he knew and others knew that he was going too far. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it, I mean, like I said, it wasn't, he didn't, he didn't use it for, full on nefarious purposes, especially once he's, you know, anything that had to do with once he was on his way to the White House, those were more kind of PR things. It would, you know, what a great guy he was. That was the sort of pitch. Right. Um, Well, you know, speaking of nefarious purposes, you made a a reference, you know, at the very beginning of the conversation to recent, you know, traumas of American history um, and and Trump. Um, So I've got a couple questions on that just as, uh, you know, in the last 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw someone joke online sometime last year that they wished we could return to precedented times because they were tired of living in unprecedented ones. (laughs) How do you deal in your own mind with this question of whether Trump in his abuses of power, in his derogation of journalists, was indeed unprecedented? Mm -hmm. Or to put it it another way, do you worry your book could be interpreted as suggesting that Trump may have been bad, but he didn't, as you just talked about, you know, secretly buy a newspaper in order, as far as we know, in order to support his own, you know, political career. He didn't actually jail any unfriendly reporters um, and, you know, and so on. People love to say that Trump's political style and practice are un-American, but your book shows us that in certain respects, at least, that's not necessarily the case. I, I wonder if you agree with that. You know, to just, to, to, to just ask it one more way, yeah. you know, what, what use is the history um, of the kind that you relate in your book in helping us assess what's really new and dangerous in a figure like Trump and and whoever comes next. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's kind of like that quote, you know, like all happy families are, you know, the same and it's not that I think that the, um, uh, each president 
that's come along has had his uh, own unique flaws and he has his own unique strengths. So I think that we don't have to always say, okay, if we see a parallel, they have to parallel all the way down the line. You know, it's, I think that what we learn from looking at presidential history is the, where people have stretched the limits. I mean, we should be learning all the time. I think of what we need to do about executive, um, the, the power of the executive branch. So, so maybe, you know, Trump didn't arrest and, you know, uh, the newspaper uh, editors and, and um, throw them in jail. But I would say him saying, you know, I, for another article I wrote, I counted it up. It's something like 900 and something times he tweeted uh, fake news. Uh, you know, he called reporters the scum of the earth. I mean, these are things that are much more, you know, ultimately probably damaging <laughs> to the uh, future of uh, the press, or at least the temporary, you know, the near future of the press. I think it can recover perfectly well if we don't have that kind of um, constant barrage. So, so I, I would say they had unique aggressions um, and so, and, uh, and so, but each thing we can learn from, right? So, so if, so if uh, one of the things that was concerning in my reporting on the book is that when Lincoln does, you know, arrest these people and then it becomes this New York governor bringing the case uh, to the courts about whether this was unconstitutional and both sides, they get the best lawyers of the time and they both argue um, that this is one of the most important questions of the day, how, what is executive reach? Ultimately, the judge says, this is one of the most important questions <laughs> that needs to be answered. And then he puts it to the grand jury and the case just vanishes. Like you can't find anything about it. And partly it had to do with the way events kind of, you know, um, swirled up in the war and the fact that, um, you know, Lincoln was about to take his second, uh, he was about to win the next election. And so, uh, you know, those are still unanswered, but we need to answer these things. I mean, you know, these have to be decided because uh, in one way or another, because, you know, down the road, you can have somebody who has a different, uh, you know, type of uh, antagonism for, towards a free press and, and we don't know what to do with it. That's a great point. And that's such an amazing moment of the book where, where you show them building up this case and talking about the deep issues involved. And then the case just totally disappears yeah. from the record. Um, you know, the, I was thinking, obviously, who hasn't been thinking about the January 6th insurrection in Washington. And I was thinking that what's what, one thing that's similar between that story and yours is how do you prosecute a crime that involves the president of the United States, you know, a, a, a potential crime. How do you even investigate it? Um, it and it made me think of, Link, of Nixon's favorite, you know, famous quote after he left office that if the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I learned American history in high school, that was kind of seen as, I think, this laughably outrageous comment. But A, it kind of um, defines Lincoln's position in, in this case that you're talking about. And now we can just see it as this de facto reality. When the president does it, that actually does kind of mean that it's not illegal or at least not prosecutable. And these are the kinds of open questions that I think you were just, you're just saying we haven't actually answered yet and it's a problem. 
Well, the, the good that we, I mean, and when I say this, I was going to say the good side of Lincoln, there were a lot of good sides of Lincoln. Let's, let's be fair. The man put his life on the line. You know, there were death threats against him, even from when he's headed from his home, going down to DC, there's a, you know, a bomb explodes in a carpet bag before the train leaves the station. He was a very courageous person to rise to that position and take the stands he did. Um, but, you know, to, one of the things he says when he's setting off on the train, uh, is, you know, uh, this power has, I'm paraphrasing, but this power has come to me for a brief period of time and it will soon pass away. And, but if my administration, you know, proves to be a wicked one or what is more likely a foolish one, as long as you, the people stay true to the constitution there, you will have nothing to fear. And so one of the thing that I think is a fantastic sentiment is, which is that basically, yes, this this is a um, a president has a lot of power, <laughs> and they can abuse what you know they can easily strain past the powers that they are even granted. But that requires then that for the democracy to work very well, all the other players in this democracy, which is everyone else, needs to be sort of on alert to be pushing for you know all of the laws that are on the books to be uh, enacted and and the protections to be executed. So I mean, it, it's interesting that the governor of New York doesn't decide to go after Lincoln in some way because there's no legal way to do that. It goes after his generals. And so, um, and, and that was interesting because he put a lot of pressure on the, the general who had been beloved in New York um, to answer for the fact that he was engaged in this activity, which was, you know, extremely problematic. So it put at least the underlings on notice that this wasn't going to be, uh, you know, just allowed. Right, right. I, I love that quote that you just, you just, summarized of Lincoln on his way to the inauguration. I mean, I, I'm critical of Lincoln. I think it's a lot of, it's fun to kind of poke at myths, but meanwhile, I, I wanted my wife to, to name our son, Abraham Lincoln, oh right here. <laughs> and she said, absolutely not. That's not happening. I mean, you know, in the way that they used to use old names like George yeah, Washington yeah. Barber. Um, yeah, exactly. I just thought it'd be pretty cool, but I, I got shot down on that one. Um, so this is my, my last big question, but we could talk about it for a while until, until time's up. Um, you know, there are several sentences in the book that stopped me in my tracks completely, but one near the end was was especially staggering. You're talking, and you mentioned a little bit about this before, you're talking about the two very different experiences of the Civil War, one full with horror, as you say, and another that was fairly comfortable, even delightful. Soldiers, slaves, nurses, frontline reporters, they experienced the horrible one. Stock traders, society bells, opera goers, they experienced the not so bad one. Commenting on this, you write, quote, it would be a false mourning, M-O-U-R, mourning, to suggest that once upon a time, Americans shared their deep woes with great sobriety and heart. It's a devastating line and, and suggests to me the undercurrent of ideas about history and indeed about America that pulse below the surface of the book. This isn't really a question, <laughs> but I wonder if you might expand on that sentiment a bit. What do you think Americans find so attractive about this false mourning, and why does so much of it fixate, paradoxically it would seem, on the Civil War? Is it the idea that even if we were fighting one another, at least it was something that we went through and experienced together, mm -hmm. a common shared history? Um, and how can stories like the one that you share in Lincoln's Lie possibly help us recover from that false mourning and lead to some kind of truer reckoning with our past and ourselves and each other? 
<laughs> it's an amazing question. Also, I might you might need to prompt me after I do part of it and say, oh, there's other, the other parts. I know I've got this horrible long question. <laughs> um, no, well, I because I think that, um, OK, first of all, one of the things when I was doing the research is as troubling as this story was, it made me actually almost feel reassured about the period that we're going through now, because we have this tendency to always want to think that we were so wonderful in the past and, you know, so serious and all the rest. And then now we're just terribly corrupt and we and vapid and everything else. And we'll never and it implies that we'll never get better. And it also implies that we are headed for a graver disaster than ever before. And I think it's just so helpful to see that the country ha had its own vapidity <laughs> back then. Um, it had its scoundrels and people who were just out to make a buck. And, uh, and, and it just sort of roiled its way through it. And that's why one of the things that I find so interesting in your book is this idea that the divisions and the fractious, fact, fractious nature is in there from the foundation and so that you know uh even so we will always probably be agitating against each other in these different ways but it's a little bit like um a, a marriage where the people don't share the same you know share a religion or something that's going to mm -hmm. keep them from never thinking they have the option to leave like we 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 are in there sort of helping shape each other by by bumping up against each other on all sorts of political issues and everything else. Um, and that's, you know, that's the way it will go for all time. I do think there's something to what you said about the idea that we want to feel that the Civil War, that somehow it, we were united in the, it's almost like it's too much, it's too much to really reckon with uh, how bad it is that people wanted to keep humans enslaved, right? I mean, the, I find even that because of the fact, um, that, like that when I was doing the research, I came across a, a photograph that was a, a slave trading post in Georgia, and there was a man sitting on the stairs and it had the sign over it and even just that because it's it's so low-key in its way you know it's just a man sitting on the stairs but he's on a shop that that's what they were doing that is so the the horror of that is almost too much to be reckoned with so instead we all have to kind of focus on this idea well it was the battlefields that mattered where we are all dying at once you know <laughs> and mm -hmm. um and uh and yeah, and that we share that. And so um, I think that that's, you know, has its uses, obviously, but I also think it's useful for us to take a look at the other storyline that's going on, because on a certain level, it's like the big bang of where we are now. You know, the way we get to see how gold is being manipulated by news and people working from DC, like funneling information and all the rest, um, so that we can understand it. Whereas now it's so complex, it's hard to even see those mechanisms. But like, even while I was, when the book just came out, there was the whole JP Morgan thing where they had to pay this enormous fine because they had been manipulating the gold market by doing wow. false buys. And then, you know, it's, I forget what the fine was. It was like 920 million or something like that. Um, but, uh, and all of these things are still with us, you know? And so, and so I just think that, looking at that other part, 
that that plays on fractiousness. You know, like an unstable situ- uh, um, country divided by partisanship is a very open field for that other kind of, um, you know, sort of criminality that's going on. And so in this case, you can take a look at how it operated in a much more simple form. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And and you, the, the last, you know, two or three pages really, really get there in, in showing the, the kind of import of, of this story within that context. You know, it's, it's funny, I, I kind of take almost the opposite um, lesson from what I think is our shared understanding of the Civil War and really of American history, the, that the fact that we were so divided and, and, and viciously so, you know, in the past, it actually doesn't make me feel better because <laughs> I feel like nostalgia is kind of all, you know, this false nostalgia, though it was, uh-huh. it's kind of all we had. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, I think that we, we very, as, as I, you know, as you know, I, I say in the book, I think we very nearly broke apart many times throughout American history, including in the Civil War. And we may now, you know, the fact that we didn't enter the fact that the North won the Civil War is no guarantee at all that we're still going to be here, you know, for the tricentennial or something yeah. in 2076. Um, well, the one thing that I find kind of beautiful, though, and it, it, I really got it from your book, too, is that there seems to be this constant conversation going on in the United States of America, you know, in terms of uh, every, you know, there's never been a period where there's complete a complete lack of political fight and discourse going on, even to the point where, you know, when uh, when Biden was elected, uh everybody, there was this huge surge of people to the local park. And I was going through there and there'd be these like guys who, who, you know, looked like, you know, they just came from, from, you know, the local bar and they'd gone to, you know, rough trade and bought a record or whatever. And then come, came there and they were suddenly giving these speeches that were like, they were like, you know, Thomas Paine or something like that. <laughs> and I thought, this is just amazing. Like that we are also engaged in the idea of the, um, you know, uh, of this, uh, you know, democratic experience, uh, experiment. I mean, certainly we lose interest from time to time, that's for sure. And we get more interested in, you know, video games or whatever it is, but there, but there still is that constant, um, uh, dialogue. And so that's the part that I find kind of, uh, encouraging is that, um, it was, it's always going to be fragile if you have a, a government that's run, alleged, you know, hopefully and allegedly by the people, um, because the people, as as even Samuel Morris, who invented the telegraph, discovered that once he had opened up the telegraph wires, he thought it was going to knit the country together, but instead it caused these huge divisions because suddenly people understood how different they were from each other, and then he tried to knit them back together. But I mean, it's 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 in the nature of the country, the the diversity of opinion and. Uh, you know, and I think we'll always be trying to battle each other to make each other better. <laughs> yeah, well said. I love that Morse quote. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much. Um, I really, really appreciate the conversation and especially the book. It's really a wonderful achievement. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's been really great to talk to you. And and I love your book. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um So to everybody watching, thank you very much for joining us. You can find both Elizabeth's uh, excellent book and mine at the link below this um, video. And please visit Zocalo's website for a summary of this conversation and many other essays and articles on American history and for other conversations like this one. Thank you again and have a wonderful evening.